Hello, this is Rachel Hopkin from the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. Together with the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, the Center for Folklore Studies is sponsoring the 13th annual Francis Lee Utley Lecture this year. And this year's guest speaker is Dr. James Revel Carr. Dr. Carr is an Associate Professor of Musicology and Ethnomusicology at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. He's the director of the John Jacob Niles Center for American Music there. He has a wide range of musical interests, including sea shanties, Anglo-American balladry, Hawaiian music, folk music revivals, and improvisational rock. The topic of Dr. Carr's Artley Lecture is musical archives, and he's participated in a range of musical archive-related initiatives, including the English Broadside Ballad Archive at UC Santa Barbara and Sounding Spirit, which is aiming to digitize thousands of American sacred songbooks and hymnals. Dr. Carr, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start by asking you how your interest in musical archives generally came about, and what was the first musical archive that you worked with? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, you know, I've, I've grown up around a lot of museums and archives. My father was a historian, and so I, I always, I remember as a kid, always being fascinated by the sort of behind the scenes of the museum. You know, anytime uh, some guests would come to town, my dad would always give us all a tour of all the things that were behind the scenes, the things that weren't on display. And so I, I always had a interest in you know, the, the, the museum or, the, or the, um, the place you visit just being like the tip of the iceberg. And so I've always appreciated the aspect of these archives that are these vast spaces that are kind of hidden from the public. And, and so I've, I've, like as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by collections and, and those kinds of things. My first real archival experience was at um, University of Oregon when I was working as a master's student there. And I, my GA position, my graduate assistantship, was in the Randall V. Mills Archive of Northwest Folklore, which was very similar to what I saw today at the OSU Folklore Archive. A lot of student-generated fieldwork, um, a lot of uh, material from... Uh, the lumber, in, you know, loggers and, and uh, fishermen and, and people like that from the Oregon coast. And uh, I just fell in love with, with folklore archives. Uh, and, uh, and I've, I've um, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of different work experiences, both in public uh, sector work, working in museums and in, in academic contexts, but, but archives and uh, those kinds of collections have always been sort of a, a thread. And music archives more specifically? Yes. Well, yeah. My, I, I found when I was working at University of Oregon on my master's degree that of all the, the ways that one can study folklore from architecture and material culture and superstitions and, and, and folk tales, what I tended to gravitate towards was all uh, relating to music and, and not just to the musical sound, but to the, all the accoutrements of music and, and the things that come along with music, fan culture, musical instruments and organology and that, that kind of stuff. And I, I've, so, so yes, I've, I've found that uh, musical archives, both sound archives and, and archives relating to musical cultures are what are most fascinating to me. So tell me about the English Broadside Ballad Archive. Yeah. Actually, even before you tell me about the archive, can you tell me about what an English Broadside Ballad is? Sure, sure. So from around the, the uh, late 
uh, 16th century through the early 19th century, there was a tradition of printing ballads on something called a broadsheet, so just one side of a piece of paper. And then uh, these ballads would be printed and then sold on the street, usually for a penny or a half penny um, in uh, all over England, but primarily in London uh, and in larger cities like Edinburgh. And so they were, they were ballads that told stories, typically topical stories about what was going on in politics or in social, the social life of the city at the time. Um, so there were ballads about the, the Great Fire of London, ballads about the plague, ballads about, and, and just strange things, you know, ballads about a, a monstrous pig that was born on a farm, you know, or, uh, uh, and of course, lots of ballads about murders and, and you know, intrigue and, um, you know, politics and things like that. So, so they were really like the news of the day written in verse and then sung. And, uh, and if you liked a ballad, you would purchase it from the ballad hawker on the street corner. And then you might post it on your wall uh, in your house or, or on the wall of a pub or something like that. So I like to tell my students that posting memes that you like on walls is, is actually a pretty old tradition in, uh, in the English speaking world. It's really interesting relating to kind of these old forms of sharing media to the current forms. I mean, obviously, the technology is very different, but at the same time, they don't seem that far away. What you're describing sounds a bit like the YouTube yeah. channel of, of the day. It, absolutely, it was. And, and it was, you know, and it, it, these broadside ballads had illustrations. So there was like a, a visual part of it as well. Um, yeah. And they were shared and they were typically sung to tunes that were very well known. Um, so it was like this recycling of musical motifs, similar to what we do today with sampling and, and, and you know, TikTok, where people are doing the same, you know, different dances to the same song or whatever. And so it was a, uh, a it was, a, a, I think, a precursor to modern social media for, for sure. And all centered around this new technology of the printing press. Right, right. right. Yeah. So... What is the English Broadside Ballad Archive, above and beyond what its name already hints at? <laughs> right. Well, it is an archive of English Broadside Ballads, and it's, uh, it, it started off just to uh, try to digitize one small collection. And by small, I mean about 1,800 ballads. Um, and my job was to find um, the tunes that went with those ballads and then make recordings of the ballads as they would have been sung, you know, uh, back in the in the 1600s. Um, today, they are they have grown the project. It's been going on for almost 15 years now, and they are now uh, on the verge of digitizing every known broadside ballad in collections and archives from around the world. Um, so uh, these are you know every printed ballad that is still known to exist is. That being digitized is extraordinary. And you're saying it started off with a single collection. Right. Right. The collection of Samuel Pepys, who was a, a diarist, who wrote a very, very famous diarist uh, in the in the middle of the 17th century in London. Uh, he was a sort of a political political figure at the time. But he he loved these ballads and he collected a great number of them. And so that was the sort of the cornerstone of this archive. 
So I was looking uh, up a little bit about the archive before we uh, met here this afternoon, yeah. and um, I saw that it had the Samuel Pepys collection, which comes from, I think it's Magdalen College, Cambridge. Exactly, yes. So am I right in understanding that the English Broadside Ballad Archive is not a depository of the original ballad materials? It's digitizing these materials in other institutions. Exactly, yes. So, And that, that is sort of one of the, the interesting digital aspects of, of what it is, is that Right. It's like a, to me, that what the digital archives do best is they can bring together these disparate collections from all over the world and bring all this material together into one place. And so, yeah, they forgot, they've got uh, ballads or broadsides now from, from Cambridge, from uh, the University of Glasgow, from, from Edinburgh, from, uh, and then there's collections here in the United States, like at the Huntington Library in Los Angeles. And so they've just, they've tracked down all these repositories of, of broadside ballads and, um, yeah, and, and digitize them, right, not having any of them physically there at UC Santa Barbara. Um, it's just the, the, the early modern center saw a kind of a need to uh, create a, sp a space online for all this, this wonderful history. That sounds like a really amazing initiative, and it's obviously kind of like mushroomed over the years. So that you, oh yeah, you, that's 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 so inspiring. <laughs> but tell yeah. me a little bit about your role. You said you were finding the tunes that these things were sung to. How do you go? How how do you right. do that? <laughs> so yeah, that was the, my thing. I I had been a, f a folklore student and a, a folk music person, but this project was largely run by the English department and they sort of they kind of brought me in early on and said well what you know what would music people want out of this project and I said well it would be really cool if you could actually hear the ballads being sung not only that would it be cool but it would make them more accessible to people with visual impairments and other other things as well so so they said great you're on go 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 get started and they bought me a microphone and a little recording unit, and I started singing, uh, and uh, and I started roping my friends in. And the fortunately, there's a wonderful book called uh, uh, oh now I'm blanking on the name of the, the book, but it's the British Broadside Ballad and its music, I believe, by Claude Simpson, who was a folklorist who collected the tunes uh, you know for because again the most of the study of these ballads had been more in the literary vein as poetry uh, but Simpson recognized that they they all had tunes that went with them and the tunes were never printed on the broadsheet um, it would just give you a tune indication it would say Anne Wallen's lament to the tune of a lady's fall and so then my job would be to look up all right, well, what is this tune of, of the Lady's Fall? Um, a lot of times those tunes would end up taking on new names. So, for example, the Lady's Fall became so associated with the ballad Anne Wallen's Lament that on later broadsheets it would say to the tune of Anne Wallen, right? So you'd have to kind of know the path that these tunes had taken uh, being recycled and reused and the most popular ones showing up dozens of times. So, yeah, it was just kind of using the resources that were available. There are some other great um, tune books like um, Pills to Purge Melancholy and uh, Wit and Mirth 
Um, so the, they're the tune books from the time period of the ballads that were are also now digitized. So you can look up these tune names in these these old books and find the notation. I'm liking the sound of. What is it? Um, pills to purge melancholy? <laughs> yes. That sounds like something we all need in these late pandemic <laughs> <Indeed>. days. <laughs> well, that's what a tune, a good tune will do. It Absolutely. is a pill to purge melancholy. Yeah. Do you remember any pills to purge melancholy that you feel like? Oh, well, let me see. I think the one that uh, I and I can't I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but a, a, a typical tune like the one I was talking about, A Lady's Fall, is something like la, 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 la. La 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 Right? So that and then that would be repeated for a dozen or two dozen verses. That was great. Thank you. I do feel less melancholy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well it's a bit of a melancholy tune. It is actually you know, like the blues, it's not meant to make you feel sad. It's meant to kind of lift your, take your sadness from you. Right, you know? right. Uh, it can be sad whilst you get happy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, of course, some of the tunes were, were actually ended up being uh, written by some of the great composers of the day, like um, Henry Purcell, uh, who wrote for the theater at Covent Garden and things like that. And so his tunes would be so popular that it would then the broadsheet would say you know two a popular new tune sung at the playhouse and you'd have to figure out well okay well which new tune was that and more often than not it was something by henry purcell oh my goodness that sounds like such a fun project it was it was great fun i yeah. bet <laughs> So tell us a little bit about this other archive that you're connected with, or one yeah, of the other archives right. that you're connected with, but one of the ones I'm naming, which is Sounding Spirit. Um, yeah. Well, this is a brand new project um, that uh, I was contacted about, uh, I guess now two years ago or so. Uh, it's being spearheaded by Emory University's Center for Digital Scholarship. And again, like, like the Broadside Ballad Archive, it's an attempt to bring together materials from a number of different places and then create a digital space where they can all be brought together. So Emory, uh, the Theological School at Emory, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Middle Tennessee State University, and then the collection of the John Jacob Niles Center at, at UK uh, are all being used to create a digital archive of hymnals and sacred songbooks from around 1850 to 1925. So, you know, not exactly the most early examples of, of American songbooks, but a kind of key period in the history of the growth of religion and especially Protestantism in, in the United States. Um, our collection at, at UK is really strong in the area of um, sacred harp and shape note type hymnals. Um, so we have a lot of those, that type of fairly unusual um, hymnal um, that was part of our uh, a collection called the Wilcox Collection. And um, so, you know, we, uh, it's actually been a great opportunity for at least one of our graduate students uh, who, is, who has been working on hymnals already uh, for her dissertation. And she, you know, they, when I was approached by Emory, they said, do you have anyone there who, 
who knows the hymnals really well. And I said, oh, yes, Erin is, is, knows our hymnals really well. And so she got hired as part of this grant as a bibliography specialist. And so it's provided her with some employment while she's been working on her dissertation. And she has gone all over to all these different archives and figured out which of these hymnals are not already digitized somewhere else, which of these are, are most valuable, most useful. And she's identified, you know, um, I think it's in the neighborhood of 2000 that are kind of the starting point for this. But I, I'm guessing like many of these archival digital archives, it will probably grow and will bring in more institutions into this into the project over as it as it goes on so why are these organizations you said this come from emory and the, the yeah. one we were talking about previously about the broad size that started at, and is at uc santa barbara yeah do you know where these organizations are getting their money to start these initiatives from well in both of these cases uh in both of those cases the money has come from the national endowment for the humanities um and you know, I know there are people who uh, who have been uh, chomping at the bit, cut the budget of the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. But to my mind, this you get the most bang for your buck from from organizations like this that that with money that's, you know, a a small, just a tiny little fraction of our national budget, but support scholarship and research and and make that research and scholarship public for everyone, you know, with no subscription, no fees to use these materials. Um, it's it's a really, really valuable thing that our federal government does. And I, I think it's something that uh, everyone should support because it's it's our history, it's our it's our culture, uh, our cultures, and it's it's uh, it's invaluable what what the what the the National Endowment for the Humanities has supported. Amen to that. Just coming back to what you were talking about this this collection of sacred songbooks and hymnals, the Sound yeah. of Spirit project. So when you were talking about the broadsides, you were talking about how they were reflecting on things going on at the moment, political yeah. stuff, murders, other stuff. It's like the form of news, so you yeah. could learn a lot about what's going on at the time from those. What kind of things can you learn from sacred songbooks and hymnals? Beyond just their content, do they in some way give us insight into a greater kind of religious culture? Oh, absolutely. Yes, of course they do. And and <clears throat> one of the great things about this project, too, is that there's been a real emphasis on collecting and digitizing American hymnals and sacred songbooks that are not necessarily in the English language, right? So... There are songbooks in German. There are songbooks in Spanish. There are songbooks in Native American languages. There are African-American songbooks. And, and so we see the great diversity of religion in America and the, and the great um, you know, variety of religious expression uh, in, in American history. And, and I think the sort of multi, you know, multiple... Uh, ways of looking at, at at God and at religion is something that's really, really valuable for us today. We tend to think of religion as something something fairly monolithic in our modern culture. And it's it's always been so, you know, um, diverse. It's always been so, so, you know, multicultural that that I think a project like this 
shows us that our roots as a country are in, you know, cosmopolitan, and, and, that, and that really comes out in this collection. Oh, that's wonderful. So this morning you came and uh, graced us with your presence <coughs> at the Center for Folklore Studies, which is currently in the Ohio Stadium, so just next to where all the football <laughs> games take place. Uh, we don't work there on game days, but if we could, I'm sure we could hear them. And we showed you around our collections, which includes uh, the Student Ethnographic Project Collection, which has yeah. over 10,000 projects that have been written by students since the late 1960s, covering pretty much every aspect of folklore you could want to learn about. And we also saw the Utley Record Collection, right. which was started by the person in whose honor the lecture series that you're here to present in is named Francis Lee Utley he started a collection in the middle years of the uh, 20th century which was looking at various forms of music that could be kind of loosely defined as folk or loosely understood as folk music from all around the world and his collection didn't just come from the middle years of the 20th century we've got records that date from I think the 1910s but as you also saw, we're not in the best archival circumstances. The stadium has no climate control. The records are stacked in shelving, which is not ideal. Cats come out of the ceiling quite literally. My own cat is from the <laughs> ceiling of the <laughs> Centre of Folklore Studies, born above yeah. in a ceiling. So what would be some key recommendations or <laughs> lines of hope for us as we think about our future? Oh, wow. Uh, well... Yeah, get out from under the stadium for one thing, because um, you know there's stadiums attract uh, all kinds of critters uh, that are eating the leftover French fries and stuff. Um, gosh, you know, I I do think it's just a matter of institutional priorities, you know. And I I don't really know much about Ohio State, but there's. All, there's, they've got plenty of money. I know they do. This is a huge university um, with, I'm sure, wonderful endowments. And, you know, like I was saying with um, the National Endowment for the Humanities, a little bit of money invested in projects like this can make a huge, massive difference and, and preserve our cultural heritage for generations to come. And I think it's it's just important for institutions like the Ohio State University or the University of Kentucky to to put the resources where they you know where they are needed and um, you know for a fraction of what the football coaches paid for example um, you know you could you could build a whole new uh, archive of climate controlled archive for your collections. So yeah, it's all it's all about priorities. So this afternoon, I don't I'm not, I don't want to keep you too much longer because you've only got one voice and you're going to be needing to use it right. for a whole lecture in a little bit. But can you give us a, a nutshell take on on what your lecture this afternoon is about? Well, I think we we've already kind of gotten into it quite a bit. I think, you know, one of the things that I I'm I have a, a sort of an ambivalent relationship with digital archives and digital humanities in general. On one hand, I think it is really incredibly important to make these materials accessible. And by making them digital, we're making them accessible not just to the general public, but you know, making them more accessible to people with disabilities in, in various ways. Um, although there's always more that can be done in that respect, but but um, you know, preserving and making uh, archives 
available to the general public is a hugely important mission. On the other hand, though, I have myself really been inspired by actually going to the archives and touching these documents or, you know, holding, you know, I, when I did, wrote my book on Hawaiian music, I, I got to hold in my hand a diary written by the Queen of Hawaii, you know, and to be able to feel that tangible connection to history is something that a digital archive can never supplant, right? So, so that's sort of what I'm going to get at a little bit in my talk is like, we have these, these, these wonderful archives that we should make them, we should digitize and make everything accessible and available to people. But at the same time, we also need to focus on preserving and protecting the archives, the physical archives that we have and putting money and resources into, into those places because the aura of those documents, the, the actual contact with those things, and of course also the contact with archivists and experts who you actually meet when you go to these archives, that's invaluable for researchers. And it can't, those things are kind of lost in the digital shuffle. So I love seeing a lot of money going into digital uh, humanities and digital archives, but I also think we should be supporting the physical spaces as well. Well, you're preaching to the converted here, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I know that the lecture this afternoon is being recorded. We're recording this on uh, March the 11th of 2022. That's right. So I'm hoping they're going to make that available afterwards for people who aren't coming to the lecture themselves, but who are listening to this podcast and thinking... Oh, my goodness, I wish I could hear that guy's lecture. He sounds so interesting. <laughs> well, I hope so. I have no control over that myself, so I, I hope I hope that it is made public. Um, and, uh, yeah. I don't know that I'm either, looking forward to I it. hope so. Um, yeah. But if you check on our website, any listeners can check on the Center for Folklore Studies at the Ohio State University's website, which you can just Google, and I'm sure we'll have posted a link to it if it does, in fact, exist at the end of today. <laughs> right. Well, listen, thanks ever so much for taking part um, and for visiting us here uh, all the way from Lexington, which is admittedly isn't that far. but <laughs> It's really not that far, but it feels, it feels really uh, great to be talking to people in person again. I was telling some of the students here, it's been probably four years since I've gone and done lectures at another campus. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a, quite a great experience to and be you, here. And you join us on this historic day where... <laughs> o'clock this evening we're going to be liberated from our masks <laughs> that's right right after my talk we'll all be able to take <laughs> off our masks it's wonderful all right well thank you so much rachel thank for you. having me again dr james revelcar from the university of kentucky in lexington thank you so much thank you